0: My talk will be about how accession to the European Union influences the behavior of political executive actors in post-communist Europe in the accession uh, countries. And this is part of a research area which is uh, it's very new, which is called Europeanization, and tries to understand the impact of the EU on domestic politics. On domestic politics of the me- EU member states, but also of the accession countries, such as Turkey, Croatia, uh, Macedonia, and the aspirant countries, uh, such as Serbia and Albania. There are s- several problems with this um, Europeanization, with this body of research, and I'll, uh, I'll highlight some of them. First of all, it has focused a lot on Brussels and on the so-called accession conditionality. So I call it, that's called in the literature, top-down focus. On the EU supranational organs, the European Commission, and on on accession conditionality stemming from the Copenhagen criteria. And uh, some of you may be familiar with them already. Uh, These were adopted in 1993 by the Copenhagen uh, Council. And these are criteria that candidate countries have to meet to become. Uh, EU member states and these are a stable democracy which respects human rights and the rule of law, a functioning market economy capable of competition within the EU and the acceptance of the obligations of membership including the transposition and implementation of EU law. As you can see these criteria are quite vague and open to interpretation and the European Commission has used its discretion to uh, interpret them and this has been labelled informal conditionality. Now, this excessive focus on Brussels has meant that domestic actors and institutions have been neglected. And this is an important shortcoming in the post-communist context, where key political actors often override legislation and formal institutions. Neglected have also been transnational processes, such as um, bridge-building between civil society actors, for example, or between executive actors, that don't necessarily go through Brussels. As I said, the literature claims that um, the EU influences domestic politics through those accession conditions. But this leaves out a lot of cases of interest where there is no way EU rule, and yet domestic change happens under EU influence. Or EU rule exists, yet it is not transferred. And it's precisely this kind of cases that I will be looking at. In terms of methodology, I have tried to overcome the top-down focus on Brussels by paying more attention to domestic actors and domestic institutions. And I looked at Romania, and although this, this is only one case study, I argue that Romania can enlighten us about the impact of the EU on accession countries. Because Romania has always been a borderline candidate, and it's her natural place would have been more with Belarus or Albania uh, rather than with a sine qua non like Poland. I looked at Romania in the period 2000 2004 when the Romanian government was negotiating with the European Commission the acquis. the acquis being the EU body of, of legislation. And although Romania is now a EU member state, I argue that its experience is relevant to other accession countries who, like Romania, are second-class second candidates with, that have always been of marginal interest to the West. The case studies I looked at in detail focused on political executive actors within the central government who are the key players negotiating the acquis with the commission, and who also were the ones who decided the what, when, and how of the cases I will present. And during this period of time, the Romanian government was led by the Social Democratic Party, uh, headed by Prime Minister um, Adrian Nastase and President Ion Iliescu. And quite a few of the Nastase cabinet members were entangled with the previous communist regime. Although they didn't, they won only a plurality of the vote, they nonetheless managed to control parliament through an alliance with a small uh, Hungarian uh, ethnic party and this was facilitated by the fact that the opposition was badly fragmented they had also packed the constitutional court they had some control over the media domestic civil society was very weak and unlikely to pose any challenges so really they were very domestically at the domestic level they were poorly checked and balanced and the only the only thing that checked and balanced them was their strong desire to uh, become part of nato and the eu and also by the scarcity of resources, uh, especially material resources. And yet these very powerful executive actors became constrained by actors less powerful than themselves. I looked at three controversies. One was uh, Dracula Theme Park between 2001 and 2002. And this concerned the government's plan to build an amusement park uh, next to Sigishwara in Transylvania, which is a World Heritage site. The second case was Rosia montana gold mining, 2002-2003. This again involved government support for an open-cast gold mining project um, in the Western Carpathians of Transylvania. And the third one was the Transylvania Motorway, 2003-2004. The controversy over this arose over <laughs> the letting by the Romanian government of a $2.8 billion dollar contract to the American firm Bechtel without public tender despite the promise they made to the European Commission that all public infrastructure contracts will undergo a public tender procedure. In each case, the, exe- the executive behaved in highly puzzling ways. In Dracula Park and the Rosia Montana gold mining, they constrained themselves giving up or postponing the projects, although there was no EU rule at stake that they had to comply with. While in the Transylvania motorway, there was a very clear rule. The commission had insisted very strongly on public tender. The Romanian executive was at the height of its accession negotiations with the commission. So you would have expected them to do everything they can to ensure that accession is not disturbed. And yet they, they went ahead with the contract and um, broke faith with the commission over public tender. Now I will talk about the first case study, Dracula Park. So this emerged as a result of the Romanian government's desire, the Anastasia's government's desire, to revive Romania's tourism industry, which was dying. And Dracula Park was conceived as an amusement mega-park, um, which was modelled on Hollywood's image of Dracula. And um, They were going to put it on a nature reserve, the Brighter Plateau, which was protected by, by Act of Romanian Parliament. And they were going to locate it beside Sigishuara, which is a 12th century medieval citadel in Transylvania. The plan was welcomed enthusiastically by the locals, by the business elite, by the government. The area has high unemployment due to the collapse of the textile industry in the early 1990s. And this is an image of Sigisoara. As I said, it's a world heritage site. And this is the Brighter Plateau, which hosts um, some very old oak trees, 400-year-old oak trees. The park would have involved bulldozing and probably they would have been damaged. Now, the expectation was that the Romanian government will get its way. However, to everybody's surprise, a handful of civil society actors emerged to oppose the government. But they lack experience and resources, and their attempts to attract support within Romania failed. They realized that they weren't going to get anywhere unless they attracted, on their side, more powerful allies. So they turned towards the Western media and Western civil society. And their efforts were redoubled by the intervention of two London-based trusts involved since Ceausescu's time in um, heading off the wrong wrong sort of development in Romania and promoting its cultural heritage. And these trusts are very well connected. They were connected uh, with the British media elite and with the British government. One of them was under the patronage of Prince Charles. And they were also well connected to UNESCO and Romanian elites in, in Bucharest and in London, in the Romanian embassy. The network feared that the World Heritage side lacked adequate infrastructure for, uh, uh, for megatourism. And they also condemned the tasteless incongruity of Dracula over an uh, amusement park next to a 12th century uh, citadel. They also feared the devastation that would occur to the Brighter Plateau which was already neglected by the local administration and was overgrazed. The civil society opposition charged the executive with threatening the cultural patrimony of Transylvania and of the Saxon community and of breaching EU principles of democracy and the rule of law. But at this point in time, the executive hadn't breached any rule. If they would have gone ahead with the project, I think it's quite likely that would have happened. But this was quite early on, so really no EU was breached. And it seems that what the civil society was doing, they were constructing, out of their own agenda, extra conditions for accession. Creating what I call an extra conditionality, supplementing um, the Copenhagen criteria that Brussels, Brussels can apply. And in their discourses, they made references to, to accession to the EU as a way of capturing the attention of EU organs, but also raising the anxiety of the Romanian executive, which was already uncertain of its accession. As I said, Romania has always been a borderline candidate, and it wasn't any certainty that it will become a member state. The network then tapped into the connections between ESCO and the European Parliament and Prince Charles, uh, who all intervened. For example, UNESCO sent a mission to Shuara and the mission tried to persuade the Armenian government to choose another site. But the only thing they, they managed to do was to, for the executive to make certain minor adjustments to the design of the park. The Dracula Towers were lower to uh, minimize the visual impact, but they didn't persuade them to actually seek another site. So they, they threatened the Romanian government with criticism. They told them at the next UNESCO meeting, a lot of you will be heavily criticized. And also you are risking Sigishara might be removed from the heritage list onto the dangerous list, which is a pretty disreputable thing to happen for a state. Then Brussels half intervened after UNESCO. However, because there are no legal grounds, the European Commission hesitated. And they were sort of scratching their heads thinking on what basis can we intervene. And by contrast, the Culture Committee of the European Parliament sent one of its green MEPs to Sigishwara to investigate. And upon her return, she persuaded the committee to um, write a letter to the Romanian authorities uh, to intervene formally. Uh, The Culture Committee is a pretty powerless committee of the European Parliament. So they wrote this letter admonishing Prime Minister Nastase that the international community will be sensitive to your decision on Dracula Park and urging him to suspend all building and await the decision of UNESCO. And the committee was trying to hint at the fact that UNESCO's idea have an influence on Brussels. And finally, the last intervener was Charles Prince of Wales, who on a private visit to Sidi Shora telephoned President Iliescu. And tried to persuade him to find another site. And he had an Im- immediate effect. The next day, the Romanian media reported him, Iliescu, saying that Romania was open to all suggestions and that the project will not be implemented blindly. So each of these interveners raised the anxiety levels of the executive. And in the end, Prince Charles was the, the straw that broke the camel's back. And the reason for which he was so influential is that he enjoys a certain authority amongst the Romanian elites because of the fact that he has a soft spot for Transylvania and its sax- Saxon heritage. And Romanians feel very flattered by this attention. And this they, suggesting that the Romanian elites cared for their friendship with Prince Charles for, for its own sake. However, more rational considerations mm-hmm. were also at play in that Prince Charles has been a strong supporter of Romania's accession to the EU, and um, he's been seen by Romanian elites as fabulous public relations. So to slap him in the face might have forfeited his goodwill. And the executive were very keen to, concern that to conserve the um, special relationship with Britain. Britain has been a strong and consistent supporter of Romania in its accession to the EU and NATO. So my conclusion is that the Romanian executive behaved irrationally in this case. And I define rationality in its classical sense, meaning an actor behaves rationally if it assesses all the alternative courses of actions and chooses that one that maximizes his or her benefits or utility. So in this case, the rational choice for the executive would have been to go ahead with Dracula Park and to the EU. And the fact that they gave it up is irrational inasmuch as they were threatened merely by discourses, there (coughs) weren't any material threats or discourses alone made them give up the park. Now, the second case, it's a kind of similar to this, but there has been more involvement from Brussels. And again, local opposition emerges to oppose plans to exploit the gold deposits at Rochia-Montana in the Western Carpathians. This is one of the richest um, uh, gold-bearing ore deposit in Europe and this is where it's located in the Alba county. And this is a a photograph from the village near to the mine uh, to the gold deposit and some have compared it to the Lake District. And recently, in 2004, Roman and pre-Roman mines have been discovered in one of the massifs that is richest in gold which would be destroyed if the project goes ahead. And this is some of the the environmental destruction that was caused by the Romanian state mine, um, which closed in the early 1990s. Parts of it are are quite run down. Um, Employment is really high, 50%, and is expected to rise to 90%. Now, this mining would entail a a large-scale, open cast uh, cyanide heap leaching operation that will level a whole mountain. It will also, as I said, it's quite likely to destroy the, um, the mines that were found. And it will also entail the building of a dam to um, uh, contain the tailing pond, which would mean that an inhabited valley would have to be flooded. And the, um, like in Dracula Park, the company who wants to pursue this project has a strong support from the local populace. Also from the local and central authorities for the reasons for um, the reasons that I mentioned already. The local opponents mobilized not over environmental issues but over issues to do with private property. In that the company was already buying properties before it had obtained all the necessary permits from the Romanian authorities, and those who refused to sell were under pressure. Again, this local opposition had no resources, had no experience, and is quite likely to have failed had it not been for a Western environmentalist who, by chance, noticed them. Um, She was an environmental journalist with the British magazine, The Ecologist. And she took up her cause and transformed the campaign into a professional campaign, which relied on transnational alliances with organizations such as Greenpeace, on lawsuits, and on lobbying e-organs. And they charged the Romanian authorities with conniving with the companies' disregard of EU norms. Now again, the same Green member of the European Parliament intervened, and she persuaded the culture committee to send her to Rocia, Montana to investigate. And her values, her personal values, overlapped with those of the civil society protesters, and she was persuaded by, the, by her connections with the civil society network to intervene. She met the Romanian environmental authorities and she asked them. The idea was to sort of make, feel, make them feel under pressure by asking questions such as uh, Have you thought of alternatives to cyanide? Have you thought about public safety issues? What's going to happen? Who's going to pay for compliance with EU environmental standards? Once you are a member of the EU, um, you'll have to comply with these standards. Who's going to pay for it? Is it the company or is it going to be the Romanian state? However, she never really clarified what EU standards had in mind. And the reason the EU hasn't banned this form of of mining, uh, which is practiced in other member states, such as Spain. So the evidence suggests that, lacking any formal basis, she was actually acting in a private capacity to support the NGO opposition uh, whose values she shared. And the fact that when she went back to Brussels, she tried to convince the European Parliament, those members that were drafting the regular report on Romania's progress towards accession, to mention Russia, uh, this never happened, which suggests that she was promoting this extra conditionality. And this one MEP had an enormous influence over the Romanian government, prompting the prime minister, who took no interest in this project before then, to intervene and ask the environment minister to decide for or, or against the project and the entire cabinet was feeling quite anxious and wanted to know whether the European Commission was for or against the project. The government's anxiety was further heightened by civil society direct actions, one of which was organized by Greenpeace, the first direct action in Romania, and which drew a lot of media coverage from BBC and Reuters. And again, the, the activists, the protesters, constructed this extra conditionality. They, they were carrying banners um, reading, Don't risk Romania's accession to the EU. The executive didn't know what to decide, so they, they tried to involve the European Commission in, in the domestic decision of Russia. However, the European Commission declined. They felt that the Romanian executive was trying to dump um, the decision on them. And if the European Commission would have intervened, then they would probably would have had to take position either for or against the project. However, they decided to intervene in a way that the Romanian government might not have necessarily liked to, to monitor the project very closely. So Russia was made part of the agenda of formal and informal meetings. And the DG enlargement went as far as asking the Romanian government to comply with a draft directive on mining waste. So this was a draft piece of legislation that had not been adopted um, by the EU itself. And overall, the evidence suggests that the Romanian government was led to understand that um, the European Commission would rather not see the project implemented. The um, Romanian government was at the peak of their negotiations on the environment chapter. And these were quite tough negotiations. And they were quite anxious and still uncertain of accession, so they decided to postpone the project. And I think they again behaved irrationally in that probably they could have pursued the project without any anything happening, the accession being delayed, or since there was no legal basis for any sanctions. So the prime minister himself publicly declared that the project was not a priority for the Romanian government, and after that, the permitting process came to a halt. And the last case study is the Transylvania motorway case. This emerged in 2003 when the executive laid plans to build a motorway linking Romania to the west through Hungary, so through Transylvania, linking Romania to Hungary. And the executive was constrained in pursuing this project, was constrained by a lack of fiscal resources but also by an agreement that was signed by the previous Romanian government that that the Romanian government will give budgetary priority to those transportation routes that are part of the trans-European network. So this is a network of motorways, rail, water, air, transportation routes that serve the whole uh, Europe. The executive believed that they can get around this constraint by signing a contract with the American firm Bechtel who then would bring in American banks and American money. The executive was also constrained by the agreement with the European Commission that all large public infrastructure projects will will, um, comply with the EU public procurement acquis. although Romania at that point had not fully transposed the directive. And the Commission has insisted very strongly on this, using it as a proxy for Romania's endemic corruption in that public funds have always been a major temptation for Romanian politicians. Um, the Romanian government had dragged their feet in transposing the directive for as as long as they could because this would have altered the rules of the domestic game and would have impinged in the pecuniary interest of the party political elite. But in the end they had to agree because otherwise the commission would not have closed the transportation chapter. So this agreement with the commission bound the Romanian government to publicly tender the motorway. However there was a problem with this in that If they would have kept their promise, um, the building of the motorway would have been delayed by six to 18 months. And they wanted to commence the building of the motorway before the elections, the elections in 2004. And this was in order to strengthen the um, electoral fortunes of the um, main coalition partner, the Hungarian party, whose viability was threatened by a faction from within the party. And the Hungarian uh, leadership believed that the motorway linking Transylvania and the areas inhabited by the Hungarian minority to Hungary would pacify the rebels. Now, faced with this dilemma, the government decided to ignore their um, promise to the commission and forge ahead with the motorway. The Romanian public cheered the motorway. And um, even the most progressive civil society uh, actors, they were too divided. And they didn't mobilize in a way they've done in the other two cases. So the building motto of the motorway began a few months before the elections and Romania acceded on schedule in 2007. So how did they get away with it? Now I need to give you a little bit more background about how the Romanian government has managed to get so close to accession. Romania's accession has been facilitated um, by building bridges around Brussels um, to the capitals of powerful EU member states. Britain, Italy, and Spain were strong supporters of Romania, Romania's succession. Britain, for example, was driven by its own in self interest in uh, obstructing the building of a European superstate. And apparently, it was Tony Blair who, in 1999, moved the EU to begin negotiations with Romania. Berlusconi became Romania's most vocal champion. Imposing during the Italian Presidency, imposing on the Commission that accession negotiations will be closed by the end of 2004 and they were indeed closed under a lot of pressure from Italy and um, other of Romania's patrons. But also the European Union's own interest in stabilizing the Balkans mattered. And The Nastasa government appears to have been particularly shrewd at building powerful alliances, not only to the EU member states, but also to the US, and observers of Romanian politics have commented that a lot of the um, large infrastructure contracts were led not on the basis of business logic, but on the basis of political logic or building powerful alliances. And apparently Nastasa strove not to take sides, but to please all his friends, and keep them on his side by distributing presents to them, one present for the Americans and one for the Europeans. And for example, allegedly, allegedly to cement his friendship with Germany, N- the Nascese government led a 650 million euro contract to a company which the Romanian press found to have been linked to the German Chancellor. And this was a project aimed on securitizing Romania's borders. Bridge-building did not stop at the level of the member states, but continued inside the supranational organs. And again, observers of Romanian politics have alleged that the European Parliament's rapporteur on Romania sympathized with Nastase, even at a personal level, and that Nastase enjoyed a good relationship with the enlargement commissioner, who came to be blamed for his permissiveness toward Romania. Now, Nastas's success in building these bridges eventuated in firm commitment by the EU member states to remain a succession, which uh, assured the executive of accession and dispelled the, the uncertainty and anxiety. So they were able now to behave rationally and defy Brussels. As one commission official put it, they took the risk of circumventing public tender because they were too confident in the good relations they had with certain individuals in the EU, including our former Enlargement Commissioner. So they were able to calculate with greater probability the consequences of their action and choose the one that maximized their benefit, which was building the motorway before the election or beginning to build the motorway before the election and exceeding on time. Now, Brussels reacted rather softly in the sense that, well, I- they reacted stronger than in the, the other two cases in that several members of the European Parliament demanded that the EU suspend the negotiations with Romania to allow it to solve its most fundamental problems, corruption, implementation of EU law, uh, judicial reform. However, these were M- MEPs from the Foreign Affairs Committee. When the issue was discussed in the Foreign Affairs Committee, the committee voted out a toned down report, which replaced the strong language of suspending negotiations with reprogramming and reorienting um, the accession strategy. And the toned down apparently was forced by the social democrats within the committee, but also by the British and the Italian conservatives. The European Commission intervened too, however, they lacked the power to demand the Romanian government that they cancel the contract. But what they could have done was to um, reopen the transportation chapter, negotiations on the transportation chapter. And that was an outcome that the Romanian government really wanted to avoid because it would have sent an extremely negative political signal to the EU. Instead, the Commission opted for softer discipline, quarantining the motorway from any EU funding and from any funding from the European banks. That, but the Romanians walked unsanctioned from their solemn undertakings to the Commission to comply on public tender and to fiscally prioritise the trans-European motorways. So why did the Commission intervene so softly? I, it appears that the Commission's self-restraint was driven by its political branch, uh, to the disappointment of the Korea, of career civil servants who would have preferred a tougher stance. And the evidence suggests that the Lyca's driver was the Enlargement Commissioner whose word on Romania was final, and whose friendship shielded Nastase from the worst consequences. But other motives figured in, in that the Commission um, probably didn't want to upset the EU member states, and didn't want to clash with the Italian presidency, and this is um, a part of the EU's culture of consensus um, on which the EU so much relies. However, the Commission might have also wanted to avoid confronting some of Romania's patrons Uh, Some of whom also circumvent public procurement uh, from time to time. And to that extent, the commission's power over the Romanian government was undermined by the member states themselves. And it seems that powerful heads of state were willing to wink at discretionary contracts if these were uh, located in their homelands contracts led to company headquartered in their homelands. And for example, only months after the uproar of, uh, of the Bechtel contract, the Romanian government led, again without public tender, a big contract to, to the French company Airbus and to Vinci Construction. And the deal that I mentioned before on securitizing Romania's borders or it was actually signed in the presence of the German chancellor putting the commission in an in a even more delicate situation that, than in the Bechtel contract um, in the sense that European companies and governments were informed and involved. So what can we conclude from these three case studies? One is the Europeanization research has focused too narrowly on Brussels and on accession conditionality, neglecting how this can be influenced by, the, by domestic actors and by the wider um, enlargement context this enlargement context has created new opportunities, especially for civil society actors uh, who have explored and exploited this new opportunity to without necessarily going through Brussels at all. They took advantage of, of these opportunities to constrain the Romanian executive and um, in Russia and in Dracula Park we saw that the protest began with pretty powerless civil so, uh, society actors who then drew in a powerful allies from, from the EU supranational organs and member state cap- capitals. And this wider network exploited the executive's uncertainty over accession and making it comply with an extra conditionality. A conditionality was emerged from this civil society actor's own agenda um, and was parallel to that of Brussels. So I think this is the variable that actually explains the puzzle, executive (coughs) uncertainty or lack thereof. And it's quite likely that the Romanian executive might have suspected an extra conditionality illusion, but they probably couldn't, be cert- couldn't have been certain that this wasn't real conditionality. This uncertainty of accession originated partly with the EU, with its attitude Rumani- towards Romania, treating it, treating it as um, a second-class candidate, but also with the Romanian's own constructions of themselves as outsiders looking in to the West. Now, the relationship between uncertainty and susceptibility to influence may be summed up as follows. When uncertainty and anxiety are high, an accession candidate will be susceptible to irrational influence as of objectively unreal real conditionality. Whereas when uncertainty and anxiety are low, the candidate may even get away with flouting real conditionality. Now, how high or low anxiety and uncertainty are, um, it's a matter, it's a question of empirical research.